Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. A great era has ended in the history of this podcast. We started this podcast about three years ago. My God. To talk about the coronavirus pandemic. And throughout this entire time, I have not gotten COVID. And that streak came to an end this morning when I tested positive. <laughs> and I just got it. So we were like very late. Wait, wait, wait. Was that your first time? For some reason, yeah. I, please don't take this the wrong way. But I just assumed that you, I, I felt like you've had it like six times or five no, times. No, what? Why? <laughs> I don't know. I I literally thought this is the third time you had gotten it when you told no, me. No, definitely the now. first. I thought I was going to get out of it. So Okay. We so if you hear it. me coughing, that's why I actually feel fine. Um, so that's why we're still doing the show. Also, you know, uh, that's how committed we are to you, the listeners. <laughs> today, we have a we, the person you hear laughing is the guest that we have on today, who also has never had COVID. I'm, this is um, bad. This is like, I need to knock on all the wood. I'm really worried now again. that I'm on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we have multiple. Is this your third time on the podcast, Silky? It is. Okay, so, so we have Silky Shot, third time on the podcast. Now, for those who don't listen to all the episodes. We're going to talk about immigration. Um, that is Silky's area of expertise. And uh, yeah, we have a lot to talk about there. But um, rather than just talk about my COVID diagnosis the whole time, I'm fine. You know, um, I don't know. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about something that I've been doing. I thought that I was not sick and that I was just kind of like running myself ragged because Late at night this week, I've just been sitting up and watching Veep until like three in the morning. And then I wake up at six in the morning and I was like, oh, well, oh I just God. have been sleeping three hours a night. So for like four days. So that's why I feel sick. But apparently not. Um, I don't it's know. It's not the yeah. newborn. It's Veep. That's cute. <laughs> that's Veep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally while watching Veep at like 2 a.m., I can hear him start crying, you know, but um He's actually a pretty good sleeper, so we don't really have that problem. But yeah, I've been staying up watching it, and I wanted to discuss it with both of you because, you know, I think that there is this, when it came out, it, I think part of the reason why it was refreshing was because it seemed like it was, uh, you know, the real Washington, right? Um, and that stuff like the West Wind was all this sort of schmaltzy nonsense, right? And the real Washington was a bunch of young staffers and profane people, and like sociopaths stabbing each other in the back and that the politicians were sort of these ridiculous narcissists and it sort of it kind of reflects that world which is much much more believable i think to anyone who has been anywhere around washington right um so i want to know for both of you who have both watched the show like i don't know does that how does that model sort of hold up right now do you think now that we've entered this very it's a very different political time mm -hmm. obviously right now than when that show came out yeah well the show came out in the Obama moment, no, didn't it? it what was yeah. the first year? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I do think it's funny because I hadn't watched The West Wing. I watched it um, during the pandemic. I what drove, what drove you to do that? I think I did too. Yeah, I don't. Well, my my partner Charles, um, who's a really big Veep fan, he, he was rewatching The West Wing, and I just started. I was just like, it's on. I guess I'll watch some of it, and it just was so ridiculous and it was it was actually instructive because I it was like the liberal fantasy that all these people I work with in DC actually imagine what things should be um, right. and imagine what they are and and believe that like if they just make the right <laughs> argument if they just believe right. you know and I was like oh 
this is this makes me understand liberals so much better. Um, so that was helpful <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> but I think Veep, what, what's I, I start I rewatched a bit this weekend because Tammy mentioned we were going to talk about it, and I was like, oh, I on first watch, and I it's, it's been a while, and we actually had talked about like rewatching it next year during the election year because it would be entertaining, mm-hmm. but um. I was kind of surprised at how many moments they actually like everything's sort of taken from actual moments. Like the, one of the episodes we watched was the debate episode where, you know, there's that Rick Perry moment where he can't remember like the three (laughs) departments in government or something. And then like the same thing happens with Selena where she's like trying to mention the three R's on immigration. Yeah. 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 And And she's just like the third R and then she ends up saying repel and it does really well. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just, just (laughs) it's so indicative of the Democrats right now where they're like, Oh, actually, if we just say we don't want immigrants, that's going to work better in our favor. And she kind of played that out and they were like, Oh, this, this isn't good for us, but it's working. And it was, but it, but it's based on something that had happened. And so it's interesting to see there's all these moments that they're actually taking from that whole debate thing. They had Mm -hmm. the other coach guy who was running, like stand in front of Selena, the way that Trump (laughs) stood in front of Clinton, you know, it's just like all the things are actually from things. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. That it it debuted in 2012. So obviously well before. Okay everything did turn into sort of this theater of the absurd. Um, Tammy, what about you? Like, you know, West Wing is so interesting to me because it became this punching bag, mostly because I think, you know, the Chapo guys would very correctly, I think, assess that Mm -hmm. the liberal fantasy was somehow tied to the show, or at least was expressed through the show, right? Um, That these were like men making difficult decisions, mostly men, right? With some like helpful women who also were like, you know, pure of... (laughs) pure of pure of mind and intention right and that they together that they would like steer this great you know different country into the right direction i've never seen the west wing i've seen like two episodes and i could oh, not really? watch it okay. anymore yeah because it's like i th- th- i'm so allergic to that type of thing or that type of show where it's not just jokes you know like where it's serious <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> i think that's why i'm like fine watching succession because it's just like a show about it's just like a joke show basically right like the plot line of Succession every season it. is exactly the same, which is just like. Okay, May says don't spoil it. Yeah, that's a good thing. Somebody spoiled <laughs> it for me last not... night. I got so mad. I, but yeah, um, Same thing happened to me. <laughs> yeah, Tammy, what do you think? What do you think about V? <laughs> well, it's funny with The West Wing because I also recently watched the, Chica- the trial of the Chicago 7 Netflix movie that Sorkin oh, made. Oh, yeah. And there are glimmers of it that actually I think are pretty good, like well-constructed and stuff. But then he does like the schmaltz thing, you know, at other moments that makes it like basically unwatchable and like kind of delegitimates like different parts of it. And I think that's kind of how I felt about West Wing. I mean, obviously having watched it like whatever, two decades after it was made, like Silky, um, you're kind of ready to interpret it according to everybody else's critiques. The thing that I do that makes me sometimes think about the West Wing when I'm watching Veep though is... With all of the aides, there are like a couple of moments per show where their idealism and the reason they, you know, maybe first got into the business of Washington, like shines through a tiny bit. Right. And you have this feeling of like, yeah, I mean, we kind of know people like that, you know, like probably people we went to college with, like Silky's organization has to deal with a lot of aides and like is always like talking to DC people. 
at some point they just tip over and become Selena though. And it does seem inevitable. <laughs> and, you know, so I think, um, I guess I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been doing a little bit more political reporting in the last couple of months that has put me in contact with some people like this. And so I feel like, you know, I think it it is a show that kind of makes you think about like this trajectory of like devolution and disenchantment and kind of makes you wonder like how we can kind of ever get out of that. But I also watched um, last night the Randall Park episode. Oh yeah, where it's like Danny Chung or whatever, and um, yeah, I just found that it. hilarious because Danny Chung, all the stuff playlist. we've been talking about with like China and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah and, like yeah, you know, yeah. um, like the racialized success stories, and you know, the other thing I was thinking about is just that it's very hard not to think about Kamala and the emptiness, right? Just like how perfect it is, even though it was obviously made a long time. I mean, Daily Show did like a thing where they're like, here's Selena, here's Kamala. And they're kind of essentially doing this. Oh, it's actually kind of, it's disturbing and amazing. But, um, but yeah, it's a send up. It's, I mean, I think that's one of the things and I don't want to, I'm not going to, you know, like Succession does this too, where it's like, it's not just a critique of, I mean, that's the thing about Selena. She's this Democrat and they're having this whole critique of her and um similarly i feel like there was a recent episode of succession where they're like playing on the like msnbc entity that's just like actually just really wants to make a lot of money it's like that it's not actually right. about this sort of vision right. and i think yeah danny chung who's this veteran who's this <laughs> like and then you know they're like oh well he has this playlist out it's like well gee i wonder who they're referring to now <laughs> um, so you're like, you're like this is this is yeah it's it's still like critiquing the sort of liberal even if it's yeah. even if jonah ryan goes all the way to <laughs> math oh, yeah. is made by muslims and therefore math is bad um <laughs> yeah i i find it so I, addictive the thing i've been most like uh compelled by by watching it now or the thing i think about is how does one make a show that's not so this cynical and is still watchable about politics and it seems like right now in this moment it's almost impossible like if there is a veep that came out now it would actually probably be more you know like it would be more biting it would be less although i don't know like you know like, selena is made? such a monster right but um yeah. but they uh but I was thinking about it because of all this stuff that's happening in Tennessee, right, um, yeah. in the state house. And you think about it, and you're like, okay, well, you have these Republican representatives in the house, down, you know, in the state house, and they're they're like every caricature that you would ever find on a show like this, right? And like uh, the reason why you watch it and you almost feel like, oh, well, how would this person exist on screen? Because like they're cartoon characters, they're just caricatures, like the guy who's just lecturing the dude, Justin Pearson, right? Who, by the way, I don't know. He went to Bowdoin, which uh, that's where I went to college. I was always just like, what, what did you do for four years in Maine, dude? <laughs> you know, why'd you go there? <laughs> there are probably better places for you to go, but um, I'm very proud as a fo- fellow Pat polar bear. But the other side of it is that you have these two lawmakers who got expelled. And look, we don't know that much about them, right? But you watch their speeches and it is inspiring in a way, right? Like it is, it like, I don't know anything about these two guys, right? They could be anything, but just watching it from the standpoint of political yeah, theater. it's incredibly moving, yeah. It's very moving. And like the people on the other side, you know, they create a visceral response. And, uh, you know, I think about it, it's just like, well, I don't know. It's interesting how one would even begin to start to portray the political process in this 
positive way that was not like silly and hagiographic and just like awful dreck, right? And I kind of think right now it's probably impossible, but maybe it was always impossible, right? Like all these movies are kind of bad, right? Like the Lincoln movie that they made was pretty bad, right? Like, um, like there's not really like a good movie about people making political change, I guess is my end point yeah. in all this. Well, in the movie, the post-Trump movie version of Veep, I think was Don't Look Up, which we yeah. talked about on the show, because that has that kind of same oh, mood. Right. But right. but I think there is this question of like, it's so you know, is a West Wing or a Veep like possible after Trump? You know, this whole question of like, when you see like, whatever, like satire in life, like, can you make satire? So I think, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense that this was a tw- 2012 show. Yeah, that's yeah. how I feel. Even though it went on into the Trump era, I guess. Yeah. And the show wouldn't have been as good if it had been like a Republican, if Selena had been a Republican. Exactly. Right? Right. The, yeah, the right. whole funny part of it is that she's like a exactly. liberal. Yeah. And she has to be basically, and she hates it. Right. <laughs> is there another female antihero like her? That That's another thing I was trying to think about while rewatching it. And I couldn't think of anyone in a, in a TV series that goes on this long. Uh, I don't. It's kind know. of marvelous in that regard, too. Yeah. Other than ensemble stuff, I don't think so. But I don't right? think anyone at yeah. this level of stardom or performance, right? Um, she's like one of the best. It's one of she's the incredible. greatest acting so jobs in the tele- history of television. Maybe, you know, <laughs> totally. up there with like Tony Soprano and stuff like that. Like, it's just right. so iconically good. Mm-hmm. And um, she's so funny that uh, I don't know. It's very hard to come up with any comparables yeah. for it. Um, not because women aren't funny and can't act, but you know there are much less shows that are centered around women. Period. And so I don't know. I, I have a, yeah. I'm having a hard time figuring out what a corollary would be. Okay, that's enough TV talk. We avoided any Succession spoilers yesterday. The LA <laughs> Times spoiled Succession right before I put I started watching it, and I actually went to unsubscribe. Because I was so mad. Oh my god, Jay! And then I and then I realized that I had unsubscribed last week. And then I was like, I was trying to remember why I unsubscribed last week. And it was I remember because I got like my bill for how much I saw how much all my subscriptions cost, and I like freaked out and I unsubscribed to everything. So now I don't subscribe to any anything except the. Actually, I basically stopped every single subscription. Oh no! I this subscribed is like to some the of my friends' Substacks. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, Substacks. I my friends' Substacks. I do still subscribe to. But okay, so so okay, I wanted to. We wanted to bring you on because I think at the very top, I think we want to get a sense of like almost an update. Yeah, immigration is in this. Sa- this is just my perspective on it. That immigration is in this strange place in the public discourse where. Everyone right now is basically just being like, yeah, bad, right? Like, we're against it. And that seems to be the politically, or at least people think it's a politically prudent thing to say. But there's very little investigation on why this might be, right? And there's very little uh, investigation on what's actually happening. Unless you are in the conservative media and then you get inundated with stories about, like, the crisis at the border, right? But I think amongst, like, prestigious or against liberals in general, right? Like, it's not something that people think about. And so a sense of what was going on, like, just tell us, like, what, what, what's been happening since the last time you were on this show? Oh, wow. Um, okay. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't remember the last time I was on. I was on sometime last year. I, right. I mean, everything's just sort of gotten worse when it comes to <laughs> these questions around asylum. Um, and in particular, you have the federal government, you know, 
as as we know, based on the conversation we were just having, we're still very much in a pandemic, but the pandemic has evolved and there's these sort of questions of what to do. And so early on in the Biden administration, they didn't end this statute called Title 42 that expels anybody coming to the border who is trying to seek asylum under the public health measure. But because the public health measure is actually finally ending, um, which is, you know, there's a lot of questions about that in and of itself and impacts mm-hmm. beyond immigration that are going to happen. Um, they are going to end Title 42 in May. Mm-hmm. But sort of leading up to that, there's this like, like they are all seeing, they being the administration is really seeing this as like a make or break point because they've kept this thing in place. It took on a life of its own. And so they've shifted the status quo. They've said, no, we're not even though under the Trump administration, Biden was saying on the campaign trail, he supported immigrants coming um, and didn't want to treat, separate families and do all the other things or put people in family detention, put babies in jail. Um, Now they're kind of basically going the opposite. And the truth is in many ways, when you look at what's happening at the border and conditions for people at the border who are trying to seek safety, they're significantly worse than they were three years ago. Um, and in, in what ways? Like, how are they worse? They're worse in the sense that um, because things have been, you know, they're, the sort of framework of outsourcing immigration policy to Mexico, they have created these conditions where people are trying to seek safety, but they're having a harder time getting into the U.S. And there's these different strategies the U.S. has been using. One is this policy called the quote-unquote safe third country agreements that that says people have to seek asylum somewhere else before they try to seek asylum in the U.S. They've also implemented this app called CBP-1, which is this like very dystopian facial recognition. Like it's just a, or like it, there's so many things about the app, the translation doesn't work, all the other things where people have to like attempt to use this app to seek asylum. It's not working. It's, it's a total mess. Um, And there's, metering and title 42 remains in place so there's all these individuals who are at the border and it's creating these sort of tenuous conditions in places like ciudad juarez um, on the other side of el paso where people are then being rounded up into detention centers and i imagine the listeners will have heard this but a couple weeks ago um, 40 migrants died in a detention center after a fire that took place and it's wild whenever you see the footage and you think about these moments when some sort of disaster is happening or, you know, this, these conditions and all these guards just left many men locked up in these cells and fled for their lives. And many of them died. And you're, you know, it reminded me so much of that moment in 2004 during Katrina when, or 2005, when, whatever happened um, during Katrina, when, Guards just left people in the cells whenever the water was rising and there was these right. horrible conditions for people. And so it's, you know, it's all just sort of snowballed where you have so many people who are trying to seek asylum. The U.S. government, as opposed to having an asylum has always been a disaster in the U.S. in a lot of ways or there hasn't been. You know, there's the quote unquote backlogs or all the other things that make it hard for people to seek asylum. But the U.S. is just making it worse by keeping these policies in place. And then you have 
all these other things that are happening. It, it enables smugglers, it enables the drug cartels, it enables traffickers, mm-hmm. it creates the conditions that children who are coming into the country who parents are sending alone because the policies are so bad and so restrictionist, they are ending up in these exploitative conditions. Um, there was the child migrant labor story. So it's all this stuff that snowballed because the U.S. policy has become so restrictionist and has sort of accepted the Trump line, which I would argue actually started much before Trump. Right. Um, right. But so that's all to say we are in these conditions now where the federal government is not like scrambling to figure out what to do on May 11th when Title 42 ends. Mm-hmm. And the conditions are so much worse than they were whenever they could have ended it three years ago or two, two and a half years ago. I was curious about whether like all of those other things besides the health measure that you mentioned as being barriers to entry have essentially were kind of like set up as a backstop to 42. Yeah. Cause it seemed like they were, they were like emotionally preparing for the end of the official end of the pandemic from the CDC. And then they're like, Oh, but we have all these other tools to use. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. They, you know, there was also this policy before called remain in Mexico or the migrant protection protocols, which was redubbed remain in Mexico, which was similar where it was like, here, we're going to keep these individuals like out of the country, why they try to seek asylum. There's, it's absolutely like a backstop. It's absolutely like, okay, title 42 is ending. What else can we put in place Mm -hmm. to prevent people from, being able to come into the country because, and it's, you know, it's this thing, it, you know, it's the thing that everyone says, the border itself is the crisis. So the conditions we've created as the U.S. government on the border is more militarization, making everything harder. And that's where all the money goes, as opposed to, well, what would it look like if we were supporting people and helping people and taking these resources to um, provide support while people are trying to come across and seek safety or figure out where they're going next? But luckily for me, I think the time when I hear about it the most, and I think that I've seen this reflected by a lot of politicians right now, is talking about like fentanyl and meth, right? And so it's like, well, we got meth and fentanyl coming up from the borders and it's affecting everybody now. You know, I don't, I'm not making light of this sort of spike in overdoses, especially in a lot of West Coast American cities. It's real, yeah. right? But um, it's been basically there's such a wide range of responses that seem crazy to me right now. We will beef up drug fentanyl detection on the border. seems totally fine. If somebody says that, you know, but there are people running for president or who are politicians who are like, we should go blow up parts of Mexico, (laughs) you know, because uh, we need to fight the cartels and stuff like that. Right. And that how much of that discourse is, is driven by the sort of drug question right now, or how much of the nativist discourse right now is, is driven by, by drug concerns? I mean, I think it's a lot of scapegoating. Like I think it's just ultimately, you know, the opioid crisis is a public health crisis. It's a public health crisis that was exacerbated and promoted by big pharma and the Sackler family. And like, instead we're in this place where, oh, this becomes about borders. And again, this gives sort of more mm-hmm. weight and power to drug cartels that are trying to sort of figure out ways to get more drugs into the country um, because there's a, a need and desire for it. And so there's like this, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a lot of scapegoating. It's, I, I mean, it's, 
it's weird how much, you know, I'm writing, I'm working on a book and in so much of looking back at the history, it's like, we kind of just play out these cycles over and over again. So it just feels very common to like what's happening in the eighties when the war on drugs was happening, when you actually started to see a lot of this sort of merging of the criminal legal system and immigration system um, was actually a response to the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I do, I do think, um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge because I, and, and even just like this framework of like, well, we have to stop the smugglers. We have to stop the traffickers. And I was like, well, actually these policies enable this. Like when people don't have papers, there are the ones who are exploited more. <laughs> and that's yeah. because of the conditions that have been created. Right. I was curious about the asylum thing that you were talking about, because I think there was this moment where people thought maybe it would shift a little bit because of the war that we're participating in in Ukraine. Um, and... I'm curious. I mean, obviously, during World War II, it's not like we were famously generous with our asylum policy toward European yeah. Jews. But, you know, there were critiques, I think, in the earlier days of the war in Ukraine around, oh, well, we're more sympathetic to these white migrants. And, um, you know, are we actually going to have an asylum policy for them, but not for people coming up through the southern border? So I'm, I'm just curious, like, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I really think, I mean, there was a moment in a sort of acceptance of Ukrainians, but there are Ukrainians who are ending up in also not great conditions and ending up in detention. And so it's not, it's not a hard and fast rule. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no, there like racial grounds sort of like undergird all of these policies in yeah. every way. Um, and it is very political. I mean, I do think again, you know, when, when we started to see the asylum system we have now, which was, in 1980 with the passing of the Refugee Act, it was also a time when, you know, again, we're, we're in the Cold War. There's this like sense of we're going to accept Cubans, we're going to accept Vietnamese, but we're not going to do the same for Haitians who are quote unquote econ- economic migrants, Black mm-hmm. migrants in particular, right. who, um, and you know, the U.S. was backing a dictatorship in Haiti at the time. So it's all these, I, I definitely think there are like sort of political questions here, but I also think when you start to see this sort of push away from some idea of like an American ideal of supporting immigrants and refugees, it is really in that post-Cold War moment where actually these restrictionist policies become even that much more extreme. Um, And of course, terrorist attacks played a role, but the Republicans, like in many ways, it's like, some idea that we were standing for something and and Reagan even if he was he was actually really terrible on a lot of these policies but his rhetoric was very pro-immigrant um and that has completely wavered since that time and when and so it's not you know even this idea of some like bipartisan support or vague as we were talking about the Selena Meyer reform, (laughs) renew, whatever it was. Um, No, but there's no, like, that's a joke. Like some idea that that's going to happen now is so absurd. Whereas before there was um, some semblance of, okay, America stands for something and immigrants are a part of that. Whereas now I don't think, you know, again, the status quo on asylum has, has really shifted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the the quiet around this issue is strange to me right like it it is we have donald trump back in the news every single day right and we he's not on twitter but he still gives rallies and he's still 
post-truth on Truth Social, and people write about him all the time. And it doesn't seem to be very much part of what he's saying right now, right? Um, he, I don't actually even understand what he's talking about except sort of, you know, everyone's corrupt except for me and we're going to rise America again. And um, on the Democrat side, obviously, there's no conversation about it, right? And um, I think that maybe this is just how it's going to be for a while, right? Uh, that perhaps everyone is so petrified of some imaginary voter that they think is going to be turned off, right? Mm-hmm. And that some pollster is telling them, you, if, you, if you turn off this set of voters, then it's all over. And yet I haven't really heard a good articulation of who those voters are you know, and what the scenario is. And like, I think about it because, you know, like I've gone back and forth about this popularist idea, right? This idea that one should just sort of do more popular policy ideas and that perhaps there's some element of quote message control that's good for the Democrats to do now. I just think that that's basically common sense at some level. And I think that's probably true, but the Democrats are in this that was all founded on like David Shore and a lot of other people raising holy hell with the idea that we're going to have 30 years of Republican Senate control if we don't do this. And it's going to start in 2022 and it's all over unless we can eke out tiny marginal gains to maybe hold off the flood for a little bit. That didn't happen. You know, didn't happen. Uh, you have like, if that was true, then you would have people like, uh, like the Chicago, mayoral election would have gone the other way uh karen bass would have lost to um rick caruso in la right like all these sort of things where like you had sort of the more centrist candidate would have turned out differently and then in terms of crime which is always linked to immigration you have all these progressive da's still winning um even though they get a lot of shit when they win but they still win right like there's still a lot of da's that are that are elected and everyone says Soros funds them, et cetera, but like they're still winning. And so I don't, the part that I don't quite get, which I'm hoping you can kind of illuminate, Tammy, if you have thoughts on this too, is like, where, what is the scenario they're talking about right now? Like, I feel like this is haymaking time for the Democrats. (laughs) Uh, Like the Republicans are, don't have shit right now. Like they're fucked. They're trying to run this Ron DeSantis guy who's like passing the most unpopular policies ever and like can't speak. He's like my size almost exactly. You're like, I should not run for president. You know, I'm like five nine and like somewhat stocky, right? Like I if I stood next to Donald Trump, I would look tiny, you know? They're gonna run this guy again, and then the other guy is like completely unelectable because he's crazy. Like they're in a lot of trouble. And like every single person, just like their entire platform is like, we must defeat the wokes. And like poll after poll after poll is just like nobody cares about this stuff, you know? (laughs) And so it feels like this is the time, but like they're not doing anything, right? Like, in fact, they're like talking about stuff like we'll bring back family detention, maybe, right? Um, so, like, what, where is this all this all this coming from? Like, I'm I'm just conf- I'm just baffled by it. Um, I'm curious about Tammy's response to this, but I yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think um, I mean that's a big question. I I guess I just at least on on this side of things, I do think it is so much about a political expediency in their sense that things have shifted so far to the right on immigration that it's going to lose them elections. And so, you know, Susan Rice is completely all in and, and, and really, I think everyone knows that she's really behind this push to 
bring back family detention. It doesn't make sense. There's so much about it that doesn't, I mean, it's, it's an awful policy. Kids literally lose weight when they end up, you know, already malnourished children end up in these facilities and start losing weight. And, um, and kids have died after being in these facilities. And so, and yeah, there's so much there that doesn't make sense, but it's, it's really just clearly they've, they don't believe this level of migration is good for winning elections. Um, and they, you know, they're just scrambling to try to sort of figure out what to do. And on this sort of like bigger question of where things are going, it's true. I mean, it is, it is very frustrating. It's the sort of like, you know, there's fractures in the Republican party, but there's also fractures in the democratic party. So you have this, like, you know, the, the sort of Barbara Lee or other folks, you know, people who are really trying to push something that's like meaningful and values based versus the way it's been, which is this neoliberal policy, the sort of Clinton Obama era of things, and they're kind of coming to a head. And so that it, it kind of feels like we're just in the middle of that, where we have these like push and pulls in these moments where whether it's student debt relief or even some of the positive things that did happen on immigration early on, like a deportation moratorium, which was remarkable that that was even on the table. Yeah. Um, to now where there's this sort of shift where all these policies, I mean, with it, it, both on climate, I mean, even on climate, we've moved, but then we move back. So it's just this, it feels like there's this constant push and pull. And a lot of it is related to these questions around elections and what they're going to do. And, and, and it, again, it reminds, you know, it's like that moment when Selena says repel. It's like they, they've they right. learned that for <laughs> Donald Trump, this worked, like focusing on Kate Stein, the, you know, Kate Steinle in particular and what happened with her death and, you know, how Donald Trump used that to essentially like be one of the things that helped him win the election. They see how that helps. And so they're they're kind of just going along with it at some level. Mm-hmm. That's how I always felt about Tim Ryan. Um, every time, you know, it's like he's kind of like Selena Meyer in that repel moment for all this stuff, you know? <laughs> he's like, yeah. And they're like, You're po- it's polling great. He's like, sure, I'll go shoot guns around. <laughs> um, Danny, what do you think about this question? Like, you know, Barbara Lee aside, yeah. Barbara Lee is, seems to always be the exception, which is, you know, why I find her <laughs> I so know. exceptional. I wonder if she'll take Feinstein's seat i don't i don't it's gonna be hard because she's too old narrative is is so ubiquitous and um and she is very far to the left and she's probably gonna be running against like katie porter and people are gonna be like well why not just elect the younger person who i thought you were gonna say schiff has a better chance but anyway i think schiff is done (laughs) i don't think i don't i think it'll be katie porter that might deserve its own episode Uh, we're talking about the succession in the cal in the senate from california in case people don't know um so i have a few different things so one thing i think that i've probably um said on the show before is i'm very interested in the intersection between immigration policy and labor policy and i think one of the tricky things right now is that you know, there's this perception that there's too many people who are not work- working, you know, who are Americans and, you know, we don't, we have a labor surplus, like we we're doing good on the labor market. And so like this kind of need for immigrant workers is maybe less, or, you know, there's a perception that we don't need um, a fresh 
whatever batch of immigrant workers. I mean, ironically, Silky had, um, we'd been emailing about Hannah Dreyer's investigation in the New York Times, which shows that there's actually immigrant child laborers <laughs> coming out of our right. migrant detention facilities who are doing work for all sorts of multinational corporations. But anyway, but I think like on the perception level, like when you look at moments where there was more of a consensus behind immigration reform, it was generally because groups like the National Association for Manufacturers or the National Restaurant Association actually supported some amount of immigration. And that doesn't necessarily answer like the asylum, you know, or refugee piece, but I think like it's kind of mixed into the the public discourse around it. Um, I also, I heard this from two separate immigrant rights people, and I'm curious what you guys think, but they had this sort of purely psychological analysis of why the executive is so disengaged, which is that Joe Biden was politicized around racial justice, but not immigration and has like no perception of like international affairs or, you know, the way that the world outside of the United States functions. So while he could be moved to be quite passionate about the rights of black people and, you know, our sort of like classic in a way, like classically like East coast, you know, racial politics, he really has no care or conception of immigrant rights. So I found that interesting. I mean, that probably only goes so far, but I think it's, it's kind of maybe worth figuring into the conversation a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the COVID piece probably has to have something to do with it. Jay, you were just saying the law and order piece. If we think about this in the backlash against the George Floyd protests, like, is that part of it too? Because then it's mixed in with the drug thing and this whole thing about disorder and the others who are coming into society. So it seems like there's a lot of different factors right now that are going against like where we would want to be. I mean, I think the point that you make about Biden is also true of like a Susan Rice, like Susan Rice, it was just like she was ambassador. And now she's like domestic policy that it's like, what does she know? Like she doesn't actually, and it's very strange to think that (sighs) now she's making all these sort of decisions around domestic policy when she doesn't actually have any sort of base or expertise in that. And I think, yeah, it's true. I don't think Biden has as, you know, like, yeah, it, it it's interesting because in so many ways he was forced to say things that were more progressive than Obama because Trump was so extreme, mm, mm-hmm. but it's true. I mean, the Democrats, built he also had Bernie pushing him. Yeah. Yeah. The Demo- yeah. yeah, but the Democrats built this system as much, if not more, than Republicans sure. have. Right, right. That's the part that I find somewhat concerning, which is that if it goes back to basically everybody accepts that Biden should not talk about two things, and those are crime and, um, like, he should never talk about any type of anything that's critical of the police, which he has shown on many occasions, including very recently with this sort of D.C. De- deal where he, you know, refused to weigh in and then, you know, kind of, like, kibosh a lot of restorative justice type of things and his sort of inability to support protests right especially around policing and then um and then he will never breathe a word about immigration that we could go back to a type of complacency that we did see during the obama administration the one thing i would mention is i think they're also getting a lot of pressure from democratic mayors and governors who are right. dealing with the busing. And so like there's, and oh again, gosh, the busing yeah. is like inherently not a bad thing. It's good. For Can you explain to- what the busing thing is? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, and it was this political stunt pulled by Greg Abbott initially, right. and then DeSantis got mm-hmm. on board um, and took some attention away from Abbott, which Abbott was annoyed about. Um, but basically they, 
started saying, well, look, you have all these migrants coming in and we don't have the resources and the federal, this is the federal government's problem. And also like these sanctuary cities are call it causing these problems. So we're going to bus thousands of migrants to New York City, to Chicago, um, to Washington, D.C. So they're your problem instead of our problem. And then DeSantis pulled the stunt where he sent people to like flew people to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. I mean, and it's really right. terrible what they're doing in the sense that they're not giving any information to the migrants mm-hmm. who are on the buses. They don't know what's happening. Um, it's all very confusing. They're not coordinating at all. But in general, busing's not a bad, it's not bad that people are being transported to other parts of the country where they might get services. Like it's, it's good mm-hmm. for them to mm-hmm. get services. So it's this weird thing though, where Eric Adams or Lori Lightfoot, yeah had come had been sort of putting pressure on the Biden administration to be like, how do you deal with this? Or governors are worried about it. Um, And so they, they don't like, again, this is like a sort of political question for them. Like this looks bad for us in our cities that are actually democratic. And like, we need to like, so it's all this stuff sort of coming together for them to say, okay, we still have to like stop people from coming because look at how Democrats are responding in these places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's definitely a big issue here in New York City and the backlash you can just see it literally on the streets outside of the hotels where some of the migrants are being housed. You see the police like literally blocking off um, you know, parts of Midtown, you know, so that Why? it's covered up. Um, so the last time I was out seeing this, I went to Port Authority and saw they have like a literally like a kind of pen where they're holding people who have been bussed in and they process them and then they send them out um, selectively to different hotels in the city. And there was one hotel where they were trying to move all of the migrants out of the hotel so they could put people who are non-migrant and houseless into the hotel and then move the migrants into the ferry terminal in Red Hook because that is the new place that they want to hold them, which is not not actually a habitable place because it's a terminal. Um, so you see this sort of thing and he's constantly complaining about, you know, how they're sucking out all of the welfare, blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do wonder kind of what that is going to mean politically for him, for Biden, for, you know, the perceptions of migrants in, in the community here. Yeah, I don't, it's really it's an interesting problem right now, because uh, I think that one of the worst case scenarios would be that type of Obama complacency where Things are happening and nobody pays attention or cares. Right? I mean, I think um, that's kind of happening though right. on immigration. Right, right, right. right. Like, that's what I mean. That's what I mean though. If so, like, there. I, I think it's very, at least to me, and I don't want to jinx this or anything like that much. Like for a while, like, well, I, you know, for the three years where I didn't have COVID, for the first two years, I was very superstitious, and then last year, I've been like being a real dick about it. You know, I mean, like, I've never had COVID. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When Tammy got COVID, I was like, who cares? You know, you'll be fine. <laughs> Like, what did you do to get COVID for the third know, time, Jay, Tammy? Like, you were traveling, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I was like, did you wear a mask on the plane? But <laughs> yeah. um, got real, like, Berkeley shamey about it, you know? But <laughs> um, but now, you know, I've had my reckoning. So I hesitate to see this. But I find it, it almost impossible to believe that this upcoming election is going to be anything except, like, the end of, you know, one of the many ends of the Republican Party, and then they'll rebrand or whatever. They'll be okay. But I don't really see a path forward for a better immigration policy even through that. And that's what sort of concerns me. I agree with you, Silky. Like, that is what we have right now. And, like, why would it change, right? Um, 
unless Democrats are still so scared for reasons that I don't really understand, except that I think that all the aides and all the pollsters and everyone that they hire, all the consultants, like they don't get paid unless they spread fear. You know, it's like this whole Mm. AI thing where it's just like, okay, like the only reason people care about it is because if you take out the existential question of it, you're just like, oh, this is like cool. This is cool. But like, how do I use it? You know, if I'm not like a writer or something like that. But then if they're like, this will end the world, then people are (laughs) curious about it. So actually, I've maybe COVID is hitting my brain because I've completely forgotten (laughs) why I'm talking about this. So I'm just going to stop talking right now. All right. I feel like I had a response (laughs) there. I I mean, okay. so my my thing with immigration is it's like an inherently intersectional issue. So there's this weird Mm -hmm. thing where for many years the immigrant rights movement, and, you know, I have my critiques, um, <laughs> has has really centered this idea that immigrant rights is about legalizing people who currently live here, as right. opposed to actually a lot of other things that are involved in immigrant rights, which okay. include labor protections, include more asylum, include, you know, stopping people being detained and deported, all these other things. But again, because the framework has always been or at least in the last 20 years, really been legalization is the gold standard. This is the thing that we want. Everything else has sort of like fallen Mm. to the wayside as priorities. And and it has moved these questions around border and the immigrant rights movement has actually like enabled movement to the border on the right. Like it, it, it continues to move that way. But for me, so much of it is, it's true. Like if we make conditions at least for immigrants living in the U.S. currently, if we make conditions for everybody better, they're going to be better for immigrants. Like, right. And there's also a lot of different strategies we can have where there can be political agency of immigrants, where whether it's municipal voting or, you know, ending. Obviously, this is like my bread and butter, but ending the detention of immigrants, um, moving away from a mass carceral system where immigrants are a big part of it um, or it's an important part of it at the very least. And so I think there's all these questions about what's happening in the U.S. or healthcare, like having public benefits, et cetera. There's all these things we can do in the U.S. to make conditions better for immigrants. When it comes to the border, I think this is where it becomes a challenge, because, again, it's not just that Biden has had a backlash on immigration or crime, but also when you look, I mean, I actually think the war in Ukraine has really complicated things in terms of where, I mean, the fact that Biden actually got us out of Afghanistan was huge and so significant and so important. But now you see even more support for U.S. military, more money going to the Pentagon. And in every country, too, in every country, the borders are hardening. Everyone's investing more in military infrastructure. Exactly. And I I just think that, again, this is a real bigger question. And in immigrant rights, we weren't allowed to talk about it. It was always Like, we're pro-American, we're pro the U.S. And it's like, no, actually, like, why we are in these conditions is because of U.S. empire. We're in these conditions because of climate catastrophe. We're in these conditions for a lot of globalization. And so it's immigration becomes this really hard issue because there's so many different layers to why we're in these conditions. And people are always trying to look for like, oh, what's the one thing we saw? And it's like, actually, no, we just kind of have to make everything. We have to kind of make all these intersections and make all these connections to show what, like, conditions need to not mm-hmm. just be better in the U.S. for immigrants or at the border, but also in other parts of the world and in this moment when migration is just skyrocketing. So, like, just to clarify a little bit, the idea is basically that 
to believe in legalization and to have that be the focus of everything, right? Like whether DACA, which was Obama's big thing, or now, um, you know, like ending things. I know there was a big push to end things like, uh, you know, like uh, carding laws, right? Or show your papers type of laws or or random stops in Texas and stuff like that. And to legalize, right? You have to put out a message of, we want to share American prosperity with these people. These people are great Americans too. And to do that, you kind of need to say America's great. Is that basically, is that basically where, where we're in? I mean, you I'm can't not be... saying that. I don't no, no, I know that. you're not saying that, but that's that's sort of the trap that people got stuck in. Right? Yeah, Which and is, also they, like, they didn't want to talk like, about oh, race. You can't be like, oh, this place sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we it should was... definitely let them stay here, <laughs> even though it's terrible, right? Like, No, you can't totally. That, it's right? like, oh, right. look. Like, I mean, Dream Act was like based on this idea that like, oh, these are hardworking, but also totally. immigrants that go into the military, immigrants that do, that Definitely. protect our country, right, right, et cetera. Right, it's it's right. very much a sort of like imperial mindset when it comes to, so those things kind of become conflated and it actually creates even worse conditions on all these other questions. Yeah, the, the DREAM Act was basically, if you cut it down very, very low under, like the very, very, not too deep under the surface, it was basically just being like, listen, your kids are definitely not going to the military. We all know this, you know? And so let's just send these people over and then we'll just give them like a, we'll give them a, we'll give them citizenship after what, what was it? Like they had to serve like three years, two years or something like that for that, right? Yeah, and, and then, it's wild. Everyone talks about like, oh, look, we, we had these failed CIR, Comprehensive Immigration right. Reform attempts in, you know, 2007 and 2013. And you're just like, the 2013 one was literally a 13 year path to citizenship. It was totally <laughs> bananas. And it was like, here are the millions of ways we're going to like make the border even that much worse. That was what the 2013 bill was. Right. And, and things have just gotten so much worse since then. It's really, and, and in fact, what's happened is we've not only moved further to the right when it comes to the border, but actually any sort of possibility of legalization is like that much harder now. Right. Right, I agree. Um, Sorry, this is very grim. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's why if there were happy things to talk about, we would talk about them. But yeah, <laughs> well, there was story on there was the that one happy ahead, thing yeah. I wanted to ask you about, which is like yeah. the DHS DACA process. So, um, folks might have seen a few weeks ago. Um, basically, there there have always been like limited pathways for non citizen complainants attached to criminal and labor criminal cases, like. For instance, a T visa or U visa, some people might have heard, like, if you cooperate with law enforcement to bust, like, your bad boss or you're a witness of another kind of crime, sometimes you can get, like, there's a small pathway. But now um, there's potentially an expanded pathway, which is for, which is part of Biden's kind of, like, labor, pro-labor program ostensibly, which is that if there is, like, a non-citizen person who can be a witness to labor violations, they could potentially get DACA, which is closer to the DREAM Act, right? So yeah, yeah Silky, like, why do you think that very narrow thing got through? That seems to be the only good thing, good news in immigration recently. So. Yeah, we did. We we have had a few other detention closures from the Biden administration. Oh, that's right. great. But I do Thank think, um, I think that went through because there's been a very long organized effort by groups like the National Day Labor Organizing Network yeah. that has been really pushing for workers' rights and looking at the sort of, and the thing about Endowan is that they've always been really looking at this intersection of the way Definitely. that, you know, 
local policing and local jails have played a role in immigration enforcement and these sort of intersections and showing how actually because of this sort of symbiotic relationship between the federal government and local counties, more immigrant workers are being targeted. And so they've been organizing for many years to push back against this, against this and find protections. And the workplace raids of the Bush era and the Trump era in particular were so severe. And I think mm. that, you know, sort of in Mississippi, I mean, 650 people and um, a lot of poultry plants were targeted. And so there's so much organizing that's happened to protect workers. And so I think actually this policy comes out of like 20 years of organizing to really have protection for workers. And it's a really amazing policy, but it's only gonna be as amazing as it could yeah. be if the if the Biden administration really needs to push to make to do the education to make sure people are aware. And I mean, that's that's the thing about all this stuff. It's like they can say, oh, we're going to do this thing, but it's, it only means so much if they're actually going to implement it and educate people about it. And so yeah. I think that's Endelon and other groups are really pushing for that right now. Yeah. Um, but it's great. I mean, and I think and that's the thing. There have been these and it, you know, this has happened in the past, too, but the these moments, I, I think, in these places where we've had a lot of local organizing support and again, Endelon is like a national organization, but they're working with all these local groups. And similarly, Detention Watch Network, we're a national coalition, but we're working with all these groups on the ground. And we just weren't one against a detention center in um, Pennsylvania, the Burks Family Detention Center. Um, mm. okay. And those wins come from many, many years of local organizing and different groups working together to support immigrants and organizers and lawyers coming together and family members and people fighting inside detention. And that's actually where we've seen some movement. Whereas in these moments when it's like, we're trying to just get some big federal policy and there's like a lot of conversation in the Beltway in DC, it's been harder. Like you really need that base of support and that sort of steady organizing that happens to get to these places. Right. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Right. Where there's still small victories to be eked out because some portion of people will always care about this issue. It's probably a better model than trying to depend all the time on political wins that you have very little control over and seem almost random. Yeah. And you have to yeah. be prepared for those moments when you have those openings. And so that's right. that like steady drumbeat, yeah. that steady work that happens. And, and mm -hmm. that's really what's been happening in the sort of like immigrant worker organizing space that led mm -hmm. to that. And to your point about intersectionality too, because it's kind of housed in labor, but it's obviously right, an immigration exactly. policy. Yeah. Well, I wanted to hear a little bit about your book, Silky. If you could just say, you know, right. know, you know, we'll read it when it comes out. But if you wanted to say <laughs> a little bit about it, because I felt like you were maybe gesturing to some sort of critique or solution when you were talking about how we've been too obsessed just with the legalization piece, a la Reagan, and maybe we need to move into something else. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, yes, I'm working on a book. It's, I don't know if I, if I say it out loud, it's Hold really on. happening. Let me use the sound effect. The, they gave us all these new sound we effects have a new in our feature software. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Wow. It's going to be a very uncomfortable process. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's sort of what I was getting at before. I To make conditions for immigrants better, we actually have to look at broader structural issues. And a lot of what I'm trying to argue in the book is, you know, the immigrant rights movement has in so many ways reinforced these framings around, like, 
immigration being a public safety issue, which it's not, you know, like all these things that have led us to criminalize immigrant more immigrants, more um, the sort of innocence frames, et cetera, that come from the broader societal questions that led us to have the prison industrial complex that we do today and have 2 million people in prisons and jails. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is show the history of that. It's going to be some critique of the movement and also, um, where we go from here, but I, I really do believe our commitment to that work to abolish the prison industrial complex, move away from a carceral economy, from these carceral systems is gonna be critical to getting immigrant justice. Mm. Um, so that's a lot of what I'm writing about, which hopefully will come out yeah. next year It'll be really sometime. useful, we'll I see. think. Yeah. <laughs> Jay can counsel you through those last stages because he just went through it. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, it's, it's a hopefully. lot. I don't know how people do this. It's ridiculous. hopefully they don't. People are not as mad at you, but they might be. Yeah, oh yeah, no, in a I, good way. It'd be good if they yeah. got mad. Yeah, at you. if they were mad at you, that'd probably be good because <laughs> yeah. you know you're right. Um, it is interesting how you know it is totally based still on this idea that hey, a lot of them are good. You know, which is how you. <laughs> You just move that line of what good means, and then suddenly you're yeah, just talking about Yeah, I mean, the like good immigrant, people. bad immigrant right. trope is, and the model right. minority trope, all those things are at yeah. the base of right. like what we're negotiating here. And I think mm. unless mm-hmm. we're actually challenging them, we're not going to get to a better place. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, I think during the course of this podcast, the coronavirus has gripped me a little bit tighter. <laughs> But I still feel fine. But I, I think I, I feel was like, like you're telling yourself that you really should I know. Rest. You should rest. <laughs> I know, but I was in this state where I was just like, here. I was like, I'm fine, <laughs> I'm totally fine, because this is how I cope with things. You know, like I basically believe the power of full denial of any problem, and then not thinking about it and suppression. But and that's how I was going to deal with this, where I was just like, well, by I'll be back on Wednesday and I'll be fine, but. You know, it's starting to get to me a little bit, you know, um, but I will, May wrote, COVID doesn't care about your denial. Be like, well, I don't, I kind of disagree with that, you know, I was like, maybe I just, maybe I can just put it away. All right. So I got to go. I feel like we enabled hotel. this. I feel bad, bad about it. Oh, no, it's okay. It's all my idea. I've done, I've been working since 7 a.m. today for the last four hours and um it's okay i feel like distracting your because what else am i gonna do you're always so sleep deprived jay i feel like at least so boring like it's 11 o'clock here what am i gonna do for the next 10 hours before it's like even kind of time to go to or 12 hours you know like what am i gonna do yeah i don't know what to do i'm so bored veep yeah maybe i'll watch veep and then sleep (laughs) yeah maybe i'll just finish veep and i'll watch some tv shows and i'll go to bed but that's just then then i have all day tomorrow like what does one do when one has covid Anyway, um, enough. I'm sure you'll come up. Thank you. <laughs> yes. You can support our show if you'd like to help. You know, poor little me in my COVID state. It's uh, $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. Or you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at ttsgpod. Silky, thank you so much for coming on. Thank Is there you, anything Silky. you would like to plug? Um, I mean, you can follow us on Twitter or all, I mean, whatever social media is now, um, Detention Watch, at Detention Watch, and where our website is detentionwatchnetwork.org if folks want to learn more and engage in any of the local campaigns we're working on. We will put it all in the show notes, so thank you. Um, okay, we'll talk to you. Bye. Thanks for having me on. Bye.